Okay, well, we are um, in Revelation chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. Hear now the word of God. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine uh, your scriptures, your word this morning, especially in light of the intensity of this morning, that, uh, that you would bring our minds to heavenly places, that we all the more would examine this world through the eyes, through the, through the spectacles of the living God, the word that you've given to us. Help us to understand how the early church, the churches that received this letter would have been comforted and challenged by The words that we have read this morning, knowing that it is the Word of God, and the Word of God is that which sanctifies us and makes us strong and holy and conforms us into your image. So we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, there is uh, both value and heartache, having lived in one area, as I have my entire life, and having ministered in one community my entire life. We recently ordained an elder who's my age, who when we were in high school, I shared the gospel with him. I have to say, it didn't gain a lot of traction back then. We remained friends, though, all those years, and then really through the ministry of somewhere else and someone else, uh, God brought him into the fold, and now... Fifty years later, we're co-laborers in Christ. That's pretty nice. That's a pretty sweet thing. To be in one community where, uh, you know, somebody in my youth group, you know, grows up and I do his wedding and then I do his daughter's wedding and then baptize the the kids and the grandkids. There's something really enjoyable about that and not moving from church to church, but staying in one place. I think it's a really sweet gift that God has given to me for me to be able to see, you know, conversions, baptisms, healing, to see reconciliations, to see families, households that you're wondering, are they going to make it? And they make it. So there's a, there's a joy to that. But there's the other side of that, the heartache. I mean, part of that just happened. You know, because I, I you know, you know, I, I'm not, if you understand what I'm saying, I'm not a professional. I'm not a, uh, when I say that, I'm like, you don't make an appointment with me and meet me for an hour, and then I don't see you again until next month. You know, most of you have been to my house, and I've been to some of your houses when I, when I get invited. 
but there's a fellowship to this. It's not just, you know, a professional relationship. And so when you see somebody, you know, like Krista laying out, you're like, there's, you feel very paternal about that. You're like going, this is not a customer, right? She's not a customer. She's a daughter. And there's like pain that, that comes with that. I've done, you know, early on, I did a lot of weddings. As, as soon as I was allowed to do a wedding, all of a sudden, I'm wedding, wedding. I was the wedding guy, and I'm like, okay, I've got to get out of this routine. I can't do this, this many weddings. But as time has gone on, I do a lot more funerals than I do weddings of people in the church, people related, and just people in the community. I'll never say no to that if I have the opportunity. You know, I do a lot of them down at the beach, a lot of my friends from surfing and from volleyball, and somebody dies. I just found out yesterday another old friend died, and I'll get asked to come and do the service, and I'm not going to say no to that, but it is, it is heartbreaking to see people who you've sought to minister to or even people who've been raised in your church have their faith uh, dashed, as it were, against the rocks. It's hard. It's heartbreaking. You, you're thinking, you know, you want them to grow up in the faith, to, to persevere in the faith, to, to, as Paul said, finish the race, and then sometimes they don't. And some of them just quietly disappear, and some of them viciously attack. They attack, you know, our church. They attack me. I mean, they're not going to go away quietly. And that's, that's painful to behold. It's like a, a child who's in rebellion against a, a parent. You know, you're looking and you're going, you know, you, you want them to be ministered to. You want them to be comforted. You want to see them in heaven. And yet you're kind of observing the painful side of the ministry where you have this investment. And for some reason, it's not panning out the way that you had hoped. And there, let me just encourage you, there's also a temptation if you decide, and I'm we have new elders, so I'm talking to you five new elders. The old elders kind of know this. But anybody who seeks to minister, you'll recognize that when you're trying to help somebody and they don't respond well, and then they go on the attack, which happens, there's the, this temptation to retaliate. And you can't retaliate. You, you can't have this, why are you treating me this way, therefore I'm going to treat you this way. You can't play that game. And I think that happens when you seek to minister, and again, whether you're in lay ministry or whether you're in the pulpit or whether you're a deacon or an elder, that's, that kind of stuff gets traction when you go into it with some idea of reciprocation. When you go into ministering to others with this idea that you, what we used, they used to call when I was studying to be a teacher, what they called psychic income, where they said, well, you're not going to get paid a lot. But your students are going to, you know, it's going to be Mr. Holland's opus. And they're going to, the, your students are going to come back to you and they're going to be so grateful that you're going to go home feeling so good about your job. And I, I was in public education not too long before I realized that's simply not going to happen. <laughs> I was recently asked by a pastor who was going to be speaking at his presbytery to ministers on what advice I would give them. And among my answers was the warning to beware of ministering for reciprocation. 
Now let me just tell you, Hebrews 13, 17 tells me as an elder that I'm responsible to God for your souls. Our elders are accountable to God for the souls of the people that he brings into the church. But it also tells you that you are to make this job a joy. That it is your job to make sure those five new elders, all the elders, and Pastor Paul have a joyful ministry. Yet at the same time, if you're not good at that, that should not cause me to retaliate. I mean, I I have to recognize that there are various levels of maturity within the church. I mean, you think about the two most notable ministers probably in the Bible, Moses and Paul, who had very difficult congregations. I mean, they weren't serving those congregations in hopes of getting something from them. They were serving those congregations because of what God had already done for them, if you understand. I I have to recognize I already have everything I need. I have a Father in heaven who sent His Son to rescue me from sin and death, and with that give me all things. So the idea that I need to extract more from you is very carnal thinking. So we've got to beware of that type of thing. God wants me and I'm saying me as a pastor, but anybody who wants to minister, he wants us to minister to others with the disposition of what God has done for us, not what they can do for us. And he wants us to minister because these are his people, and he wants them taken care of. It's almost like we're babysitting for God. These are my kids. They're not your kids. And so you need to love them as I would love them and as I have loved you. There is, but it's, and it's not just new, this temptation to kind of strike back. We've all felt it. You know, you're in, you're in what it seems to be a civil conversation, then all of a sudden it turns south. And then if somebody else walks into the middle of that conversation and hears you, it's almost embarrassing the way you or I are now talking in this conversation. Because there is this tendency in our flesh to behave carnally that way, even as Christians. Consider the words of Peter calling us to imitate Jesus. Now, he's not writing this out of thin air. He's writing it because it's taking place. He's talking about how we should imitate Jesus, who, when he was reviled, when he was attacked, when he was besmirched, when all the awful things were said to him and awful things were done to him, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Sometimes you're just going, Lord, I'm just going to let you handle this. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Now, what I just said was, as I was studying these four verses, was one of the takeaways of this passage. It's one of the things that I was reading this, and I I studied this, and I got to the end of it, and I thought... How is this ministering to me? What, what is this telling me about God? And what is this telling me about his call in my life and how I should behave? This was one of the things that jumped out at me. Hopefully you'll see it when we get there. And it's also my prayer that we'll have other takeaways 
as we kind of, you know, go through these four verses. Looking at verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Well, this is the second half of the, of the chapter. So in quick review, John had seen, he had seen a mighty angel come down from heaven. This angel, who may very well have been Christ himself based upon the description, was a colossal angel. He had one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And this, this angel makes an oath that there should be delay no longer. Basically what he's saying is that the saints have been praying that God would bring his justice. And God earlier had said, you need to wait a little while. And now what we're hearing is that delay will will last no longer. There is going to be, as it were, the climax of the answer to that prayer of God bringing his justice to the oppressors and persecutors of his body. There is an anticipation that during the sounding of the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God would be finished. We talked about that in detail last week. That mystery marks the complete, obsolete, and vanishing or vanished nature of the Old Covenant That mystery being that the Jew and the Gentile are one body in Christ. That's when you see the word mystery in the New Testament more times than not. That's what it's talking about. That the church would not be consigned any longer to one nation, but to all nations. It's the gospel for the whole world. That might be obvious to us, but it was not obvious then. Recognizing this, in the Old Covenant, God worked through and spoke through one nation, Israel. But now we have an international gospel. It was always God's plan that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It wasn't some new thing, but it had been lost in the thinking of a society that worked along the lines of one nation. Now, John is no longer merely reporting the news. What we're going to see now is John's becoming part of the news. We'll see that in chapter 11, where he's called to measure the temple. Here he's called to eat a book and so forth. So he's called to take the little book from this colossal angel. I don't know what that would have looked like to have a big angel than a little book. We are told that the book, and we, we might just gloss over this, but I want to stop here just for a second because I think it's significant. The book is open. It's an open book. Why why do I think that's important? Because when we read in Daniel of a sealed book, you have a book that's sealed or a scroll that's sealed and another one that's open. What's the difference? If you do your homework and you study this, you realize that when something is sealed, it's not going to be actually prophesied for a long time. Hundreds of years, maybe longer. But if something is open, you're saying it now. All this to add to the fact that what John seemed to be writing about was something that was going to soon take place. This is happening now. This isn't the distant future. This, these seven churches reading this would recognize something very soon was going to take place. The little book is open. 
and the transmission of the knowledge within it was about to happen. Well, verses 9 and 10. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Well, John, as we all should, obeys the voice from heaven. He receives the little book from the colossal angel, and then the angel gives him the very odd order to eat it. He's also told what it's going to taste like, and he's also told what kind of effect this is going to have on his stomach. Well, this elicits a lot of questions. I don't know, maybe it doesn't for you, but as I'm studying this and all the people I'm reading, they've got a lot of questions and a lot of answers. I mean, what, what's in that little book? What does it mean that it's bitter and sweet? And, and why is John called to eat it? So I'm going to try to answer those three questions in reverse order here. Now, that in some sense, that little book contains the Word of God is without dispute. Everybody knows that it's the Word of God. Some people think it's the whole Bible, other people think, but we're not going to get into that right now. In a moment, we're going to address more specifically what what it's actually uh, contained in it. But what does it mean to eat it? Why that imagery? You see, this isn't unique to the Revelation. The idea of eating something that is spiritual in nature is not something that just shows up in chapter 10 of Revelation. We read in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. So the the words appear, and he eats them. The psalmist, and I I could have come up with 50 of these, but I'm just giving you the idea. Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This idea of ingestion, eating something, is, is a very common biblical metaphor. I mean, I would, get, I would ask you as I continue, have you been eating? How's your diet? Have you been eating the Word of God? We see in the New Testament, Peter in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we see this idea of Milk and tasting. Yet in Hebrews, to go on with the idea of this milk, the author of Hebrews goes, you need to go beyond the milk. We read in Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. I mean, it's time to get the solid food, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained 
by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. But that's a hard balance to find sometimes when you're the teacher. Sometimes, you know, as the pastor of a church, you're tempted to give a TED Talk. You ever watch TED Talks? I mean, you know, they're 18 minutes long. No notes. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I, there was a period of time when I didn't use notes, and everybody was like, oh, I really like that you don't use notes. And I'm like, why do you like that I don't new, use notes? I don't like it when people don't use notes. I don't want to be, the, I don't want to be like the victim of your ability to, mem- to remember stuff. Write it down. Like, I want to know you've done your homework, and I want you to write down the things that you're saying, and I'd actually like a record of it, you know? But you kind of go, well, I could go there. And, so, and there are places, like, you know, when, I'm, when I am doing these funerals on the beach, I, they're not like a sermon I give here. They're not 58 minutes long. You know, sometimes it's 12 minutes, right? And you're like going, you've got to, this has got to be milk. This is like non-fat milk here, you know? But, at the, but there's got to be this time when you move on. You know, you, you move on to the, to the more solid food. But let me just say here that even though John is given a very unique prophetic assignment with this little book, we're not given a book to eat and then prophesy the way, quite the way he is, although I would say in a certain sense we are. Let us not lose sight of the impact of what it means to eat something. It's a, it's a very intimate thing. In a, in a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to eat. Jesus talked about it in such a way that he was actually in the early church accused of cannibalism. Christians were thought to be cannibalistic because they were eating the Savior. I remember as I was coaching, and there was another coach, and during the timeout, she was trying to fire her team up And she was like, can you smell the victory? And they're all like, yeah. She's like, can you taste it? Yeah. She's like, well, that's different than eating it. Right? It's not just tasting. It's not just smelling. You need to eat it. I mean, and she got pretty rough, right? Sink your fangs in. And I'm like, calm down a little bit here. But you get the idea that even in the passage we've read in Hebrews where it talks about you've tasted you know, if you read, if you study that, you realize a lot of the people who tasted weren't even believers. They just tasted it. But when you eat it, it becomes part of your, the cell work of your body. You know the old saying, right? You are what you eat. And when you ingest the Word of God, it begins to manifest itself. Right? You know, I mean, I have a buddy who's a dentist, and we went out to lunch, and there was something on the menu that looked really good, but it had garlic in it, right? And I'm like, hey, you going to get that? It looks good. He's like, I'm a dentist. I'm going to be right in people's faces. Like he knew that if he ate it, it was just going to come out, right? Of course, just I guess even tasting it might, so the metaphor falls short there. But you get the idea, right, that it just comes out of your pores in this idea that when you eat the Word of God, you study it, you meditate on it, you make it yours, it begins to manifest itself in the way you think, the way you speak, the way you behave. John's called to eat this, and so let's not lose the depth 
of that. Eating something is not the same as tasting or smelling something. Let us not be those who merely have the word of God on our tongues, but not in our hearts. Let us be careful to avoid being numbered among those religious charlatans of whom Jesus spoke in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I mean, you see what he's talking about there. He's like, you know, they're not teaching the word of God. They haven't eaten the book. They're eating a different book. They're eating all sorts of other books, and they're showing up in pulpits. We are to see his word. We are to smell his word. We are to taste his word, and we are to eat his word. His word is to be a joy to us. His word is to be a delight to us. His word, as Jesus taught in John 17, 17, is truth, eating. But John then, in our second question, is warned that the little book is both going to be sweet and bitter. And then, having eaten it, he found those words to be true. He says, he's, be, he's told it's going to be bitter in your stomach, but sweet in your mouth. Then he eats it. And he's like, it was sweet in my mouth, but bitter in my stomach. And again, we might go, well, that's just kind of a repetition here. But as I read that, I realized that this is not a mere hypothetical reality for John. This is becoming an existential reality for John. He's not just hearing that if this happens, this will take place. He's actually doing it. Right? I mean, boots on the ground. He's putting shoe leather to his, to his faith. You know, we live in a funny age. People, they speak of trials and tribulations, pains, sorrow, courage, all sorts of... There's so many brave Christians behind a keyboard and a screen. Not me, I would, I'm going to tell you, I'm just not impressed. People ask me sometimes, they're like, well, Pastor Paul, so if there was a gun to your head, would you blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, I would hope so, I don't know. I mean, maybe the one way to figure that out is put a gun to my head and see what I do. I mean, I hope I would, but I don't want to take, I don't want to take credit for being courageous just by mouth. I I've had the opportunity, especially in in China, to minister to people who actually end up in labor camps. Now, see that? I'm like, well, you know, and the the times that I've gone there, it's like, I'm relatively safe when I go there because, you know, they don't want to have an issue, you know, an international issue. But But the people I'm ministering to, they're not safe when they show up. There were, the first time I went, there were about 30, 40 pastors there representing literally hundreds of thousands in the underground church. And every single pastor in the room had been in a labor camp. Some for long periods of time, some for short periods of time. But they were all kind of going, you know what, I'm, I've been told to eat this word. I've been told to do this, and I'm going to do it. So it's one thing to, to talk a good game. But you know the old saying, right? Well done is better than well said. 
Again, this type of metaphor, this idea of sweet and bitter, is not new or unique to Revelation. Ezekiel received a very similar message regarding, this is regarding the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 by the Babylonians. So we go into the Old Testament and we see similar language. He's told to eat this scroll. This is in Ezekiel chapter 3. We won't get into detail there. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So he's like going, eat this, eat this, and then you're going to prophesy. So he eats it, and we're told in Ezekiel chapter 3 that in his mouth, sure enough, it's like the sweetness of honey. But then in that passage, Ezekiel is told, you're going to speak it, but the house of Israel, they're not going to listen because they are, they are impudent and hard-hearted. It's, it's almost as if God is preparing Ezekiel for a less than favorable response. Things are not, it's like Jeremiah, right? His whole ministry, not one convert. It's almost like, are you going to do what I've called you to do, regardless of the numbers, regardless of the response? Getting into a little deeper, verses 9 through 11 of Ezekiel chapter 3, and tell me that you haven't felt this way from time to time. Do not be afraid of them, God is saying. You're going to proclaim the word, do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, which I find interesting because I'm like, my thinking is I would be much more afraid of their sword than of their looks. But you and I live in a culture where we are silenced right now because of the way people look at us. For those of you who can't see this or listening on the radio, I'm giving a look of discredulity. Don't be dismayed, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words, that I may speak to you and hear with your ears, and go, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord, whether they hear or whether they refuse. I think it was Spurgeon who said, you know, no matter how many coyotes howl at the moon, it just keeps rotating around the earth. And we're, we are called to be that way. I mean, I think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's one of my favorite passages in Daniel where he's like threatening them and he, they're like, oh, we're not going to bow down. Our God will rescue us. But then they say something very human. Yet I, I'm so moved by it. He goes, and they say, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your God. There's a, like a holy obstinance, you know. There's like a godly, when I, I know sometimes when I'm playing volleyball and it can, I can tell we're going to lose, right? to this day I'll still play and I'll be like, you know, this isn't looking good for us. And one of the things I like to say to my partner or teammates, I'm like, okay, let's be stubborn. Let's be stubborn. You know, there's something about it, right, where you're just going, I'm just not going to give up. And you're going to, I had the opportunity one time in a tournament to, to be beating a, another guy that way who ended up becoming an Olympian. He was really good. 
And it, it was, we were in the finals, and I had a really good partner, and it was just, and I, we were going to win. You could feel it. And he looked at his partner, and I can't say verbatim what he said. But he said to his partner something along the lines of, let's not lose like, and you can, like a less than virtuous person. And I, I'm like, wow, that guy is, he's not going to give up without a fight. And he ended up at, you know, he was only in college back then, you know, and then after college, like I said, he became an Olympian, one of the best players in our country, because he had that attitude. The attitude was, you know, I'm not done until it's over, you know, so we're called to have that kind of persevering spirit. Remember, we've talked about this over and over. I mean, the revelation is all about those seven churches overcoming, persevering, following through, finishing the race. whether they hear it or not. There was a response Ezekiel had, though, when the word of God, which was so sweet to him, was rejected. Just a few verses later, so the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. So you see the sweetness in his mouth, but then he's kind of seeing what's going on, and there's this bitterness. Later in Ezekiel, in the context of the blowing of the trumpet, we're all called to blow the trumpet of warning, lest their blood be on our hands. That's the context of this passage. We read of a disposition that God has that we should have as well. Ezekiel 33, 11 Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn, turn uh, from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? We, we need to be always reminded that the people who are making our life more dif- most difficult, we should not respond to them in a carnal way. All this to say that the beauty and the sweetness of the Word of God can carry a bitterness in the environment of its rejection. You taste it, it's sweet, you eat it, it makes your life a joy. You're looking at this beauty and, and then you, you cast it out and it's, as it were, trampled underfoot and there is this bitterness it's a heartbreaking bitterness. I think the Apostle Paul expressed it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, more using the idea of an aroma. He wrote, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You get what he's saying there? It's like, there's one aroma here. It's the aroma of God. It's the aroma that's going out to those who believe, and it's the aroma going out to those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to other, the aroma of life leading to life. But it's the same aroma. You don't change the aroma. It's got to be a pleasing fragrance to God first and foremost, and then let God do what he's going to do with whoever smells it. But we live in a land that we want to change the, the smell. We've, we've become a church of diffusers. You guys know what a diffuser is? I just learned a couple of weeks ago, so it's new to me. It's 
my first use of it. For the men in the room, <laughs> it's a, something that puts off a scent, you know. But we're like going, well, our church is going to have a different aroma, you know, and so we don't want to play that game. In the context of our current passage, the sweetness, I would argue, is the sweetness of answered prayer. It is the sweetness of God protecting and preserving and promoting his covenant people and the gospel they are called to proclaim. That's the sweetness. The sweetness is that the good news is going to have its way, that God is going to bless those who bless his people. The bitterness is the heartache that at very least should attend us when people refuse to embrace the truth. It should break your heart. Now, let me just say this, just in case. We should not read this in such a way as to condone a bitter attitude, right? Don't become bitter and go, well, look at God gave me a bitter spirit, so I'm going to be bitter. That, that is not what this means. We should look at this more the way we look at having eaten something and then it's like a poisonous in our stomach. It's not a bitter attitude. It's this idea that in my, in my bowels, this is just so painful. This hurts. I would say that Jesus is talking of this very event, at least in the wider context, in Luke 19, 41 through 44. This was his attitude. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, this, your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is, this is and I've showed over the months here, we've looked at so many passages like that these days of vengeance. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they've, they've, they've killed the prophets. They've rejected him. They've, they're going to kill him and they're going to kill his followers. And yet he's weeping over them because they refuse to acknowledge what's going to happen. They have ignored the day of the visitation. Now, what is that? I would say the day of the visitation at very least is the incarnation that God, the Son of God made flesh, dwelling among us. The truth in their midst, they've rejected that. They should have known. But because they rejected it, there'd be another visitation, and that is the visitation of judgment. But this was something that caused our Savior to weep. I don't think he's weeping because it was a mistake. I don't think he's weeping because he thinks this is a bad move on the part of God in terms of his his judgments. It's a weeping that we should have when we see our lives surrounded by those who just walk in darkness and refuse to acknowledge the truth. It should be something that is within us. Remember the words of Paul. Now, you've, you've seen me. I've preached on this, but I, may just want to, I just want to shed a little deeper light on this. This is the Apostle Paul's disposition toward a people who are trying to kill him. I mean, if you want to study your New Testament, 
Paul's you know, brethren according to the flesh, his Jewish brethren, similar to the way he was before the road to Damascus, where he's breathing threats and murder against Christians. Now he becomes a Christian, and the others are seeking to kill him. I've had people say some pretty nasty things about me over the years. There's only been a couple of people who I thought, um, honey, if I go missing, check their refrigerator. <laughs> There's not this standard fear that I have that somebody's going to kill me, right? So it's hard for me to get there, right? But he was there. And what does he say about them? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Whatever kind of visceral reactions you're having to your environment, they need to be overcome by a conviction. Now, the initial application of this was to the first century church. Let's not forget that, that these seven churches are the ones getting this information. But we need to read Revelation the way we read all their books in the Bible. In the same way we read Corinthians or the churches of Galatia, to whatever extent it applies to us, it applies. The churches, you know, Corinth wasn't written to Branch of Hope. It was written to the churches of Corinth. Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. But we read them and we recognize that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And when these things show up, we need to respond the way God has called them to respond. So when we find ourselves in similar situations as these seven churches, we need to recognize the sovereignty of God, the power of God, and His call in our lives. Well, what does that mean? That means that we are to ever proclaim the word of God. We are to rejoice when it is received. And we are to have a godly sorrow and compassion when it is rejected. Either way, we are called to ever proclaim it regardless of the season. Finally, what is in this little book? Well... It, when, if you study the Revelation, you realize there are so many things that are hard to figure out and, you know, kind of cryptic things. And that's where a lot of commentators go, you know, it's exegetical spring break. I can just write whatever I want because you're not going to be able to disprove it because nobody knows what it is. So I'm going to hear, I'll proclaim what it is. Let me just say, we don't want to be precise where God is imprecise. As Paul writing to the church at Corinth and he said, don't go beyond what is written. We need to be careful to not be too creative and innovative. If anything, you know, if I'm going to say that, I might say something along the lines of, you know, it seems to me like this could be, but it may not be. At least kind of go there rather than boldly proclaim that which is kind of, you know, not clear in the text. But the last verse of our four verses today does tell us at least something. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. I think he's talking there. I think the the obvious antecedent to that is this little book. It does not appear to be the repetition of the previous prophecy. You're going to prophesy again. It's another prophecy. And this other prophecy focuses on many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So it seems to have a more of a international feel to it. We've been focusing on Israel. 
Later on in chapters 13 through 18, I would argue that he's kind of going, no, now it's becoming more international in nature. Now, let me just say this. I'm not in stark disagreement with those who believe that the prophecy against Israel continues all through to chapter 19. It's not like at them and go, you don't have a good argument here at all. There are some very good arguments that it's all, all of Revelation is about the end of the Old Covenant, i.e. Israel, and the beginning of the New Covenant, which is international in nature. I think that's the heart of the Revelation, and that is the victory of the gospel throughout the course of history. But I would say that the reference in Revelation 17.9 to seven mountains, you know, the city on seven mountains, is pretty universally understood as Rome. I do think that the altercations moving to the Caesars in chapters 13 to 18 draws us to a more international focus of the Roman Empire. But here's another reason, and to whatever extent, and I, this is of interest to you, from this point on, it'll be a TED Talk. 18 minutes, no, just kidding. Here's the reason why, one of the reasons why I think what he's doing here is he's going, you're, the oppressors of Jerusalem are going to end and the oppression of Rome is going to come to an end as well. You realize that Revelation, if I were to ask you, just a quiz, what Old Testament book most mirrors Revelation? What do you think? Daniel, or Ezekiel, or Daniel. Matter of fact, if you're in seminary and you take eschatology, it's going to probably be called Daniel Revelation. It's the Daniel Revelation. Well, we see in the second chapter of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and then none of his old guys can figure it out. So, you know, he brings in Daniel. And in that dream, there's this image. In that dream, there is also this stone made without hands. Who do you think that stone made without hands is? Right. Regardless, regardless of every last single person who studies the word in any position, any eschatological position, they all agree that it's Jesus. There's no debate. That stone made without hands is Jesus. Now that stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream comes down and destroys this image, this like statue that he'd been dreaming about. Now, just so you know, also universally agreed is that the four kingdoms, because that statue is broken into four different pieces, elements, are the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Everybody agrees with that. The more modern view today says, well, it's Rome, but it's a reconstituted Roman Empire. It's not the Roman Empire I hope you understand, I don't want to be mean-spirited here, what an eisegetic imposition on the text that is. Talk about the stone who is Jesus. Jesus was born during what empire? The Roman Empire. And yet you develop a brand of theology that says, well, no, it's not the Roman Empire. That Roman Empire, it's not that Roman Empire, it's another Roman Empire. I'm sorry, that's where you begin to lose me in terms of letting the Bible say what the Bible says. But then you have this. 
the stone that is Christ, who enters into humanity, strikes the image. But we're told where on the image it strikes. Daniel 2.34, you watched, this is Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Which one's the kingdom of iron and clay? It's the Roman Empire. Jesus was born during the Roman Empire. And then, and we'll finish with this, in anticipation that I would argue of the fulfillment of the Great Commission, this idea that, you look at, we need to continue to preach the gospel. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Onward and upward, press, persevere, in season, out of season. We read in verse 35, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You ask me why I'm a post-millennialist? The whole earth. It started, you know, I mean, it's not a mountain, by the way, that strikes the image, is it? It's a stone. And then becomes a mountain. Does that remind you of parables at all? A mustard seed or leaven. Or even in Ezekiel, there's the stream coming out of the temple. It's just a little stream and then it becomes an impassable deluge. It is slow growth. Person by person, heart by heart, message by message. And we are called to contribute in our generation to what God is doing And in the current context, to most of the world, Jesus had become not a stone, that kind of stone. He'd become a stone of stumbling. But I do pray for us that he's the rock of our salvation. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray when we consider the ups and downs of our individual lives, the ups and downs of the success of the gospel throughout the course of history, that we would recognize that you are accomplishing something glorious and we do pray that we would devour your word and that we would proclaim your word. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be part of what you are doing and may we ever be faithful in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.